Welcome to the podcast, The Aftermath, in which Daniel and I sit down and process and deconstruct a Sunday's message. So Daniel, this week is yeah. James, the book of James. What, yes. are we, what are we thinking about today in, in the wake of that or, or anything oh, for like, that matter? Yeah, I just, I'd like, uh, so I, it might've hit me a little bit different because the, the Wall Street bets thing happened this week and uh, like I was, you know, really rooting on uh, the, uh, I guess the, the Redditors in the, in the situation uh, in Wall Street there. And like, I think like for me, like some of the things that, that, that James brought up, um, especially about like uh, the, I don't know what you would call, do you call the dagger men and people like that? Like some people within the justice movement have decided to take like vengeance into like our own hands. Yeah. And like that for me, like I was like, oh crud, like, that's that's where we've messed up quite a bit and decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and take the vengeance too. Like we're supposed to do justice and we're supposed to take care of the poor and the homeless and the widow, but it's like it's not our job to uh, go ahead and execute vengeance or that judgment that that James talks about. That's not our job. Uh, that's that's God's job. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's a it's a really tough balancing act and and I think this is one of the reasons that he talks about wisdom a couple times in the letter and to pray for wisdom because I think it really does take God's guidance to find kind of where that line is because we certainly do need to be working for justice and a balancing of the scales and to the extent that there are those of us who have resources and are in a position to make things better, right? To, to bring a kingdom ethic into the world, like we should be doing that but where is the line between making things right and, like you said, exacting some vengeance? Like, there's definitely a line not to be crossed. Sometimes it's not real clear where that line is exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Th- there's situations in which, in order to bring justice, you not only need to balance the field and, and sort of remove whatever oppression is going on, but you also need to, you know, bring about some, you know, whether it be reparations or payback or, you know, something to, actually make up for it. So there's some sort of judgment to be made in there, but I think you're right that, that there's a there's always within this dynamic a desire to go beyond that into some sort of vengeance and, and strike a harder blow than what ought to be struck. For me, I just, I felt like I, I hadn't crossed the line, but I had like rooted people on who may have crossed the line. Yeah. So like, um, I... Like, like for me, like the, God was just like, "Hey, that's something in your heart that you haven't acted on, but it's there, and uh, like, so something I need to take care of." But that wasn't, you know, necessarily the the whole point of of the text. But like, that was just something that like hit me, and I was like, "Oh, I, I need to switch this up. I need to change this." Yeah, I mean, James definitely strikes a different number of different blows in his letter across the spectrum, and. But I think that was a big, actually is a big point because it was a big part of his church's problems, right? So his church is made up of that lower class, poor, the oppressed, uh, the people who were prone and ready to take up arms and, and you know, take to the streets and revolution. So, I, you know, I, th- I think it is a big issue in his letter. It comes up at the beginning and then again at the end. So In the beginning, like, I thought it was, like, super interesting, too. He tells us to take joy in, in that, you know, because he— 
like a lot of people reference that, you know, when you're in hard times, they, I think they assume that's just automatically any trial. But uh, as you talked about Sunday, like uh, this was a wealth gap kind of issue yeah, this that, is, that James was addressing. And I don't think there's any problem with extrapolating from the letter to say that when other trials of other sorts come, we need to kind of approach them the same way. But for this church and James leading the church in that period between, um, you know, 30, 40 AD when Jesus took off and then the destruction of the temple, that's a powder keg of socioeconomic revolution and uh, yeah, the particular issues and, and the one that the people of the church were facing were, was this socioeconomic oppression and uh, literally being abused and exploited by the elites uh, who had made deals with and compromises with Rome for their own benefit. So it was, it was very much a, for James and his church, a socioeconomic thing, yeah. which I think is where, where a lot of that parallel comes from from the letter that we can really map on to today. I mean, we think about the riots that have been going on when you've got people who are feeling pushed down that they have no recourse, you know, right or wrong. Like if we can debate the legitimacy of their claims, but that's certainly their perspective. They're basically in the position of, of James's church, right? And we watch riots go on and there's a lesser, baser part of all of us, I think, in watching that. We're either on the side of the oppressed like you said, rooting them on, kind of you find ourselves even relishing or, or at least entertained by some of the violence and the, the fires and the, the looting that was going on. Or uh, we're on the other side that wants to come down real hard on them, yeah. side with the oppressor, and we think that they all need to be uh, silenced and you know put in jail and the long arm or the law needs to come out hard, right? And, and those, there are two extremes there, neither of which are healthy or God-like or Jesus-like. I mean, I think there's, there's a middle road in there that acknowledges the cry for help and, and can look at that and say, well, the violence is not acceptable. We ought not be looting and taking life and means of life, but we also need to recognize that there's a real issue here that needs to be addressed. Right. My whole thoughts on the thing was when you deny people justice, this is, that's, you're kind of sowing to the, to the wind there. Like, if you're denying people justice, you're a government, you're a person in authority, these are the kind of things that are going to happen. Not all those people were, you know, Christians or believers or anything. So, like, I fully understand, like, if you're someone who isn't a believer, like, saying, hey, this is the road we're taking. Like, they denied us justice right. and the rule of law. So, we'll, we'll just say throw the law out the window because it's not working for us. Right. So I fully understand that. And I think that's that's like part of God's judgment on like these places that, you know, have decided not to do rightly and um, not to prosecute people who did unsavory things, like uh, not to prosecute people who killed people. Like that's the judgment, I think, from God that they're they're really running up against. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you made the point that, you know, if, if we take God out of the picture, what recourse do you have? Well, the only recourse you really have is to take the streets yeah. and take up violence and kind of throw the throw the law and, and order out, out the window altogether. That's true on the other side too. You know, like if, if you throw out the God got out the window, if you're the oppressor, like what, what real motivation do you have to change? And I think one of the, the things that's really important to recognize about James and his message is that you have to remember there is a God in the midst of this that's going to set it right. And so he can he can look at the people in his church and say, take joy in the midst of this, like God will come to our aid. And the next breath, they can look at the oppressor and say, hey, judgment is at the door, like it's God's coming for you. So I, you know, I think if you really can grab hold of that, especially as someone who's on the underside of the equation um, and realize that you, know, you do have a God who will will make things right. And even then in saying that, like, what, is, what does that look like? And what is the timing of that? Think back, you know, the, the exile and some of Israel's history, like it was generations that that took. Yeah. So, you know, it may be that, 
you and I have to endure suffering for our entire lives. It may be generations before God comes around, but in the case of the first century church and that, that early church that James was addressing, like it was literally a matter of years. And to your point, it was Rome came crushing down on them. Right. And so it was the sort of the godless force in the world that got used to crush down upon that whole system. And of course, everybody gets scattered, the church included as a result of that. So I don't I don't know that it was like a bunch of like, you know, blessing and, and wonder that came out of it on for the people who were being oppressed. Like they they ended up on the wrong end of judgment as well in the midst of that. So to some extent, I don't even know what to make of all of that, you know? So you'd like to think, oh, you know, when God's judgment comes, the bad people get their just desserts and the those who have been faithful and followed God's way are going to, you know, get benefit and blessing. But uh, James, I mean, obviously James got killed, but his church got scattered. Uh, I think that's probably another reason why, why he tells us, you know, to take joy in the suffering. Right. Like, just enjoy this right now yeah. um, because, you know, maybe something else worse is going to come. Yeah. Um, I thought I thought it was like, I've noticed in a lot of these um, books that we've been, we've been going through um, in the series, like one of the major callbacks of, of a lot of them is to the 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 great commandment to, to love God and, and then to love people. Um, and James directly references um, uh, loving people. So he kind of like, I just kind of, calls you back to that like it's to me i'm just like okay this this really reinforces that we should love this is our part to do like maybe maybe we're not executing the judgment on you know the oppressive forces but what our job is to do is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to uh treat them right when we say you know love god love your neighbor we obviously as christians think that that's uh jesus's great commandment which it is of course um the thing that i don't know that we talked about much on Sunday was that you know James and his church they're all Jewish right this is a this is these are Jews this is a sect of Judaism and for them and even for Jesus what he was doing he was calling back all the way back to the Shema which was hero Israel the Lord God is one and the following portion of that is love love your neighbor as yourself that sort of great commandment Jesus uses because it is the great commandment that's always been there like this is the call from the very beginning since God gave the law in the beginning like the whole purpose was love God, love people. Just the idea, you know, that you're hearing and recognizing that that keeps coming up. Like, it's not that it just keeps coming up in the New Testament. Like, that's always been the call. Uh, that's the call of right. the, the prophets. You know, they they rail on Israel, not because, you know, they didn't wash their hands right or because they ate pork or they, they broke some part of the purity law. They rail on Israel because they've forgotten the moral law and they've, they're oppressing the poor and they're not taking care of the people the way they should. I would say like, I don't know, there's a large portion of the church here in America that may not recognize that that's there as much as it is and doesn't see the line through that uh, this carries through Old and New Testament. And this is, you know, one of our, you know, fundamental kind of missions. Yeah. I, I mean, are you asking me why I think that's the case? Because it definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to, yeah. Yeah. Like I think this think goes back the to the case or. Yeah. I, I think that all goes back to the conversation that we've had before with really the last 100 to 150 years of salvation culture that the evangelical church has really been pushing, but has become sort of the, the dominant idea in uh, particularly American Christianity is that what Jesus was doing was a rescue and salvation message and mission. So that the purpose of this is to get saved for the next life. And if that's your purpose and you, you believe Jesus and then you're just kind of sitting around until the time you go to heaven, well, all this, the rest of this stuff kind of just falls by the wayside. And it's kind of why... I've been pushing, I know with the church, but we've talked about on the podcast too, like we have to recover the full 
message of the gospel that Jesus is king and that brings with it all of this other stuff that we're talking about, right? That there is there is a kingdom and we are members of it and he teaches us to pray that we're to bring that kingdom here now. And all of that means loving God and loving your neighbor. And we are on a, we are part of the restoration project of the world. Like we, we are called to participate in kind of bringing God's justice. But, but I think to answer your question, all that gets missed because we're too worried about just kind of checking people off a list to make sure they're saved. It's, it's why this, like, these conversations, like, theological debates and, and that kind of stuff, like, if you would have asked me, you know, 12 years ago, you know, our purpose here on the earth, you know, I, I could have came up with, like, a, you know, like a decent definition, you know, make disciples, get people saved, would have definitely been, like, at the top of the list. But, like, loving my neighbor might not have made, you know, my top, you know, five that somehow gets, it was lost on me at the time. Like, although like I did love my neighbor, I knew that was like an important thing to do, but it has been left out of the the mission. And I, I think like a lot of these conversations that we have kind of, they're taking us back to the purpose and the, the man of, of Jesus Christ. That's why this kind of stuff is important. It was lost, I think, on America for you know, I, we're starting to, I guess, move back towards like a movement where we are uh, loving our neighbors again, which is so silly. But like, you know, we had, I think you talked about the three bills. Uh, yeah. Billy Graham, Billy Sunday. When you talked about that, I'm like, oh, this has, you know, skewed theology for the last, you know, almost 100 years, right? Yeah, it definitely so, has. It definitely has. And, you know, conversations we've been having recently about the importance of theology and putting yourself in the process of, of being discipled and learning the breadth of scripture and the message is really important. Right? And a lot of the pushback that's happened in those conversations has been, oh, you know, you don't need man's learning. You just need to pick up the Bible and the spirit will tell you what he needs to tell you. And I think, you know, that, that latter message is, is really kind of coming out of that salvation evangelical culture thing where if all it's about is being saved, well, yeah, you can absolutely pick up the text and read the story and come away understanding that we all have fallen short of the glory of God and we need God to step in and fix the problem. And he did that through Jesus and we need to accept Jesus and then we're saved, right? Well, yeah, you got that. But there's a lot more in that text than just that. Like we said, I think right. on that Sunday that you're referencing, like if that's all that the point is, like we don't need the gospels. We need Genesis one, two, and three, right? The creation, the fall. And then we need the end of the gospels where Jesus dies and is resurrected. Like that's the story that salvation culture tells. None of the rest of the rest of it really matters, right? Right. It, and so yeah. the process of engaging in discipleship and theological education and learning from the people who know more than you about the story is uncovering all of this other stuff. And, and this is sort of deeper, more important message even that, which is that God comes back as king of the world to reestablish his kingdom. And we have the entire Old Testament because that is God kind of showing you a picture of what the kingdom looks like in terms of his rules and his laws and the way we need to treat each other. And then much of, you know, Paul's letters and, and James, of course, and, and the other letters that we've read so far or gone through so far are telling us about all of that. Like, what does it mean to be those kingdom people here and now in light of Jesus, the Messiah. I really feel like this is kind of a continuation of that that message. I, it was probably about four or five, might have been before Christmas, you talked about becoming a people. And this is, like, I feel like we've been on this training quest. We've kind of like, we went and did some deconstruction in the, I guess, the first part of last year. And then uh, now we're like, we're still in this 
process of learning how to be a people and like going through some of our church, even recent church history um, with the three bills that we were referencing, like this is recent, recent church history that has shaped the thought of generations. So we have to kind of unlearn this stuff and really learn, you know, uh, how to be a people of God. Yeah, you're definitely right. And it's, it's kind of, it's a tough sell, I think, for a lot of people who have grown up and the majority of their church experience and teaching and learning has been within this modern uh, American church context because I mean, we become so indoctrinated in that salvation culture that that's the message and that's the point and that's the purpose. You know, be saved and then just be a nice person that when you start to talk about this other stuff, people really don't want to hear it. You know, in, in some ways, it's a lot like the rejection and, and resistance that Christ and then the early church got at that point, you know, and, and there's a lot of parallels there too, you know, that we've made it about something that it ought not be. And when we start trying to bring everybody back to or bring the church back to its real purpose, like there's a lot of resistance to that. It's funny because you kind of bring back uh, to my memory, like the Old Testament prophets who we see said these things, you know, and kind of railed against the oppressors and people who weren't taking care of the poor and the, the helpless. Those people were not liked. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, they, they they weren't liked. So I guess for us, you know, like this is, this is the way, you know? Yeah, um, it, and it really is. There's an irony in there too. Like, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, the prophets, they killed the prophets, right? They killed Jesus. They killed James. <laughs> they killed, I mean, all of the disciples. John, you know, if, if John of Patmos, the John the seer, is John the disciple, he may have lived a long life, but in exile. <laughs> but as far as we know, all of the disciples themselves met crucifixion or hanging or stoning of some sort. You know, like, this is unfortunately the models that we have don't end well <laughs> for for the prophetic voices. What happens so often now is that gets interpreted as anybody who disagrees with me justify, like that being disagreed with justifies my my position. I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I hear this all the time, right? Like, well, you're being persecuted, so you must be right. Well, no, you, oh, yeah. you, you might be wrong. Like being persecuted and being disagreed with and argued with and spoken against might mean you're wrong, right? The other person might be the prophetic voice and you might be the, the recipient of the correction. Like there is, there's being persecuted, but there's also being corrected and they're not the same thing. I think it's true that when you step into the the role and begin talking about this rediscovery and reorienting and recentering of the church on the kingdom and a, and a kingdom ethic, like you will be persecuted. But just because people get mad at you and yelling at you and disagree with you doesn't mean you're right. So one does not necessarily <laughs> Wait, mean the other. Do you remember, like, I, so I was like 19 when I met you and, and you had the Java house at the time, I remember like, I don't remember the moment, but I remember like the conversations where you pretty, like, it was like you were red pilling me. <laughs> so like, you kind of opened my eyes to like all this that I had missed in the past. That, that was like, I didn't realize that I was like having persecution at the time. Like I lost a lot of friends. <laughs> you did. You lost about and, all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it threw me for a loop and it took me like, you know, 
uh, probably about four or five years to really recover and kind of reground myself. But like, I think it was just because I like, I don't know if cause, just because I came from such a fundamentalist kind of background, but like I realized there's a lot more in the context. There's a lot more that I wasn't seeing. There's a lot more that like I wasn't allowed to talk about or ask questions about. So when you and I, when our relationship first started, you were there to kind of answer those questions and let me ask, you know, questions that I have and like, maybe, let me say stupid stuff, you know, in front of people. <laughs> So like those kind of things, like being able to ask questions and, um, you know, find honest answers with, with the group of people, like that was big for me. Um, and I'm hoping there's like people out there that are like starting to have questions like outside of the, the normal thing. And I'm sure they're, they're finding us cause like it just, it just happens when you're looking for that kind of stuff, you find it. Yeah. I think, uh, I kind of hate to use the matrix just cause it's become, oh, it's become no, 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 no. I, I, it just becomes such a trite thing like it's kind of the the christian go-to default metaphor but I, I i can't think of a better one in recent history but i think you're you're right it there is this process because of our recent and by that we mean like the last century or two that that period's worth of history and understanding or misunderstanding of the text we are kind of caught in this perspective or viewpoint that is not right but it has a whole theology built around it to support it that seems ironclad and and locked up. And when you start chipping away at it, you do get a lot of pushback and resistance, people calling you heretics and you're some liberal progressive and you know, you you name it, we've (laughs) we've heard it. And I guess to those that are out there that might hear this, that are, you feel like you've kind of had your eyes uncovered and and you're you're starting to hear or you're, you're firmly in sort of this more historic, fuller, tradition of the church and God's people, that's part of the deal is that's the prophetic reality, right? You speak God's truth into a people who don't want to hear it and they're going to hate you for it. So like one, be prepared for that. But two, I think to your point and kind of your experience and what was going on at that time and is starting actually again is kind of be in tune and looking for and praying for and following God's leadings to find the people who are ready for those conversations. You and I kind of came into contact at the time when you were ready to start asking those questions and were open, at least to some extent, to, hey, maybe there's more going on here than what I've been told. And there were a lot of people at that point that were, that kind of gathered and, and started having those conversations, but certainly not everybody was. And there were people that yeah. were really <laughs> upset that what was happening in and around that church was happening. It does unravel a lot of what we've been taught and that is unsettling for a lot of people it's you know a lot of people feel threatened by that um, in particular people who have built the churches or communities in which they have the power and the authority when you start right. unraveling the thing that has put them where they are and the letter of james that's what gets him killed right he's attacking and unraveling the power power structures and those that are in power and have made the compromises with rome to get where they are he's going after them and when power feels attacked, they attack back usually. Hopefully in our context, that's no, not violence, but it does come with lots of words and condemnation. And that's the deal. Excommunication, I think, is always the, the biggest one. Like, I'm just the kind of person who, like, you can say something like, bat, you can tell me I'm a heretic, you can tell me I'm an idiot. You can say those things and we're still cool. But, like, not talking to me, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> they're not <laughs> talking to me. Like, that's that's the most difficult thing. And, like, one of the things that, like, 
in the, in the past like year, like I've come to realize is like anyone who says Jesus is Lord and has them set, you know, has, has Jesus set as the king of their life and is living to, you know, do the outworking of his kingdom. Those people are my brothers and sisters. So like, I've been real slow to, uh, just as James says, you know, um, quick to listen and slow to speak to my other brothers and sisters because those are my brothers and sisters. <laughs> like, like I have to, uh, I have to love on them, um, and it's, it's important. Yeah, it is. I'm in, and I'm thinking back to the like, that whole period that you're you're referencing when you and I met. You know, like back in like what 2009 ish or whenever. But yeah, like at that time. I'm just thinking about where I was. I was right in the middle of like what was, you know, some people out there are going to know this term, some are not, but like the emerging church, which was basically it was the predecessor to what is now like the progressive church. So the emerging church was right. this entire movement that was aimed at sort of doing exactly what we're talking about, like like stripping away a lot of the more modern recent developments and misunderstandings and getting back to a more historic, fundamental, truthful picture of kingdom and, and God's purpose in the world. And within that broad movement, there were, there's a spectrum, like that's the case, you know, everywhere, everywhere in every movement, there's a spectrum of people and beliefs and, and the ways that that gets worked out. But there was this other subsection. So it was kind of confusing for a lot of people, but it was like the emerging church. And within that, there was the emergent church. And that's really what became this progress, what we now know as the progressive church, where it was uh, kind of some out there things. But like I learned so much during that time because even those people who were in that really progressive wing, I can't tell you how many times recently I've heard like progressive Christians aren't Christians. Like go look at their belief system. They absolutely are, right? They're holding on to right. Jesus as their core. They're trying to, you know, embody him in the world. And do I agree with everything that they say as far as how that works out? No. You know, do, do I agree with everything they have to say about how we interpret scripture? No. But like you said, they have Jesus at their core, like they're brothers and sisters. But the other thing to think is or realize is that if you don't, if you don't rush to just kick them out, like there's a lot to be learned from them. Differing perspectives that are critical of your own show you where the faults and the kinks in your, your thinking are. If it wasn't for that sort of, I guess what we would call sort of a liberal progressive movement in the church, we would not have gone through the, the sort of awakening that we have over the last you know, two or three decades. It is always it's it's always the margins of the church, the the wax, the ones that are called the heretics, that end up reforming the church, right? I mean that's that's what the Protestant Reformation was. Like it was it was they yeah. were deemed heretics, but that you know that reality has. I mean obviously the church itself in the first century were, were by Jewish standards are heretics, right? Like that's again when you're talking about stepping into you know any sort of like prophetic movement or role, you're gonna get screamed screamed and shouted down. Get some thick skin, I yeah. guess, <laughs> right? Um, so how how did it work with like James? So he was still part of, I, I guess, Judaism, right? When 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 this was happening, like yeah, there. It's how, how did the sect? How how did that work with Temple? I guess this is really like kind of diving in there, but like how did that work? Like from yeah, Laban's, I don't think for, for like Laban. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a it's a muddy mess is kind of the the answer, and I don't think that we know specifically exactly how all that works. Because obviously in the beginning, we have Paul, Saul, who's persecuting them, right? So there was right. some animosity. The Christians were seen um, very much as kind of a renegade sect. They were a threat. You know, they, they were seen as being heretical because they were assigning the status of Yahweh to this man, Jesus. So that didn't go well. But at the same time, they were, they were Jewish. So 
they would go, and, and I think what we read in Acts kind of provides a little bit of a hint is they were still Jewish, and for many of them, they were hanging on the Torah practice. So they would go to the synagogue and the temple on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and they would do their Jewish things, and then they would gather on Sunday, and that's where they were celebrating and worshiping Jesus. And so there appears like there may have been some separation in the minds of that church that, hey, we're not going to we're not really going into the synagogue. I mean, obviously, Peter and, and the early disciples did, right? That's what happens on Pentecost. They go right in there and <laughs> preach the gospel, right? And that was their call. But I think as far as like the, the everyday church in the, the decades after that, there seems to be this sort of unwritten agreement that we're going to kind of do our Christian thing on Sunday, our worship of Jesus and our teaching about Jesus on Sunday and Saturday, the Sabbath will be our Torah time. And there's, there seems to be some sort of balance that was struck at some point because they did – we know they, they coexisted right? until they didn't. Obviously, they were kind of pushed out. But <laughs> I, I, I don't know that we being mo- modern scholars know for sure and I certainly don't know for sure and, and wouldn't speak definitively about any of that. That's just kind of what appears right. from what I know and what I've read. That that's kind of it's, – it's, like I said, yeah. it's, it's a muddied mess. And I'm sure in some places they were, you know, they were more accepted than others, and oh yeah, because there were like localities, right? So for X amount of people in a in a locality, you could have a temple or a synagogue, right? Yeah, and and synagogues popped up all over the place. Synagogues were the uh, obviously the temple was the temple in Jerusalem, but synagogues were like the local houses of learning that happened in all the towns around. And so you know what flies in in Jerusalem might not fly in Nazareth or right. other other areas. So. Uh, or Capernaum, or you know any of these other localities. So it's, that, it's, that really helps a lot. Yeah. So that's kind of why I say it's kind of a muddied mess, and it's hard to say. And the same thing happens when you get into like the early church. Once we get into the first couple hundred years, like you've got Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome, and you know all these different centers for the church that are all kind of creating their own theologies and understandings. And and so there are. In the same way that, that that we talk about Judaisms at that time, there are sort of Christianities as well that kind of that they all have the same core, and then it's a matter as time progresses of bringing them all together. And sometimes they come together, and sometimes they don't. And that's kind of where the East and West Church split. And we have the Orthodox Church that came out of the East Church, and Roman Catholicism was the Western, and then obviously Protestant. So it's it's never clean right. when we're talking about religion and church history. So anybody who tells you one side thought this and the other side thought that, and that's the way it was, and it was black and white, uh, is yeah. either trying to simplify it for basic understanding or doesn't know what they're talking about. So with the early church, you know, we we have like it seems like we have like these disagreements in the church, and then we have councils, and then we decide, hey, this side is right, and they kick the other side out, you know, and like so on and so forth. Do you think that's, that's not really helpful, right? <laughs> like, so, um, so they have, they <laughs> yeah, I, so take for example, like the Council of Nicaea, which was the first real big council. This is, this happens uh, in the early 300s. And the, the big debate that's happening there is over Arianism. This guy named Arius uh, has come forth and says, it's a, it's a Trinity issue. And he says that uh, the son the second person, the Trinity, was a created being. He was the first and highest created being. And then Athanasius, who is the one that takes up what becomes the orthodox position, says, no, 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 they, he's a co-eternal being. But this is the big battle and fight that happens. And that council gets called together to deal with lots of things, but that's the biggest issue that comes out of it. At the end of that, the orthodox position, the the co-eternal position of 
Athanasius wins the day. That council is the bishops. The bishops were the leaders of all of these area churches that we're talking about. So there's a bishop, bishop of Rome, a bishop of Alexandria, a bishop you know, in Corinth and Antioch and all these towns and cities where the local churches were have a leader and that's the bishop. And so these councils was a council of bishops where they all get together as the head of all of the churches and they debate things and come to some consensus regarding whatever the issue was of the day. So in this instance, it was Arianism, this Trinity issue, and they go the way of Athanasius and they all actually when Arius uh, gets up to talk, I think actually Arius, if I remember correctly, Arius wasn't a bishop, so he wasn't allowed to be there, but somebody else present, presents his opinion. And when he puts it to the floor, he gets shouted down and run out. Like it wasn't really even a debate. Like he just gets right. run out of the room really. So obviously his side becomes for all intents and purposes heretical and kind of kicked to the curb. Um, are, are you yeah. asking, is that helpful to the extent that they need to be removed from the church because they have leadership and they're a threat, I think that's necessary, right? And Paul yeah. even talks about this. Like if you got people who are driving wedges in the church and preaching false teachings, which Arianism certainly is, the, those people kind of, you got you to gotta get rid of that. Now, do they get brought back in? Well, truth be told, this issue went on for hundreds of years. And there were, it, to some extent, it depended on who the, the emperor was. You know, another emperor would come on in power down the road and he would be at the position of Arianism. And because of the way that the church and the, the Roman Empire were so entwined after Constantine, there's this big problem where whatever the, whatever the emperor said ended up happening. So, you know, <laughs> that's so insane. <laughs> it, it, it is. And, and, and that's why a lot of these things are looked at, particularly from a Protestant tradition with a lot of skepticism. Now, does it mean that it was all wrong? No. Does it mean that God right. didn't work through all that? No. I believe fundamentally that he, you know, firmly that he did. But there are lots of reasons to sort of deconstruct that whole history and, and wonder what happened. But you got to remember what's going on in those times. You know, these are the first few hundred years of the church. We're really formulating a lot of what will become orthodox theology. Um, you got people like, like Marcion, for example. He's the guy who uh, Marcionism is this idea that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. And so Marcion puts together a canon that rejects all of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament, he ends up with Paul and Luke uh, as his canon and kicks everything else out. You know, these are legitimate threats to the church. And if they take hold, well, it really changes the game entirely. I think, at the, again, let's go back to where we started and James's plea for wisdom and pray to God for wisdom. Like, what is the threat? What's the status of the threat and the disagreement that you're having today? Like you and I, if we're having a conversation and we disagree, does you holding your position threaten the truth of the church? Right. Well, you and I are not, neither you or I are popular and listened to enough that we're going to derail the church, right? Like that's just, the, <laughs> let's not get big heads about ourselves. Like, you know, we have some people that, you know, are within our circle of influence, but do we need to be excommunicated? Uh, probably not. You know, do, do the people that we're talking with really need to be excommunicated? Probably not. Are there things that need to be spoken against and explained and, and debated and ideas that need to be thrown in the trash? Absolutely. But to your question, should we be banishing people from the church? I think the answer is usually no to that. I think it does more damage right. than good. You know, I think entering into conversations and debates and, and talking through things with people and, and keeping them connected to God and to the community of God to the extent that they aren't doing harm— 
is way more important than kicking them out just because they disagree. I, like, just for precautionary word for those who are deconstructing, like, lean in. Like, you know, maybe you do get, you know, banished from your church or excommunicated, but do lean in to Jesus, do lean into the word. Because I think sometimes, like, we start to deconstruct and then we're just out there on a limb, you know, and you just, you just like, well, forget you know, you, you took one brick out of this thing and it all crumbled. Just forget all of this. But like, if you're deconstructing, please, by all means, like, you know, lean into the scriptures, find some other people who have either been there or uh, are going through the same thing and, and get with them. Um, don't just kind of go it alone and then just throw the whole thing away because, you know, something you've been taught like was completely wrong. I don't think we can overstate that point at all. Like that's so important I mean, this is this is discipleship, right? This this is meant to be a community because there is a danger, certainly, when you go through the de- deconstruction process of trying to like unravel the traditions that you've been given and the things that you've been taught that you don't find your way back um, <laughs> because you are starting from a place that is questionable to begin with, and you don't know where the firm ground is, right? right? And part of being discipled and entering into that mentorship process um, and, and you know, what you, Daniel, are encouraging people to do, and I certainly would echo, is find people who hold strong to God, who have gone through that deconstruction process and can help guide you through that because uh, you got, I mean, th- that whole process, the whole purpose of deconstructing is to drive down deeper to find the bedrock of God, to get everything else out of the way, to find God, and then build back on top of that with, with good about biblical sound teaching. That doesn't just happen on your own in a vacuum. Um, no. If you're if you're mining for God, you know, use that analogy, like drilling down into the ground, like you could miss it altogether and and just be gone and flailing. And and that unfortunately does happen. That's the danger of going through a deconstructive process. You have to deconstruct with the purpose that you're going to reconstruct. I think that takes help and guidance. And if you know, if you're out there thinking, hey, I'm on on the edge ready to go through deconstruction or I'm in the midst of it, you also need to hear like there are lots of us who have gone through that process. Like that's you're not the first to approach that. A lot of us, I mean, there's a whole, I mean, there are hashtags on social media that are just ex-evangelical, like people who have rejected a lot of what the evangelical church has taught them, the things that we're talking about, who have gone through that process and found a real, honest, authentic faith and relationship with God and are building a more biblical reality for themselves in their communities. And so that's out there. So find those people. Anything else coming out of James? I think that's, that's, that's it for me. Like that was a big kind of learning thing, like a refocus, let God take care of the judgment. You know, once again, you know, love your neighbor. <clears throat> I'm starting to figure out, you know, how easy the Bible is. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about going, you know, deeper in, into theology and, and digging some of this stuff up. But the, the more that we do that, the more I'm like, oh, there's, you know, there's these, you know, few things that we're told to do. <laughs> yeah, it's like love it's your like, neighbor seems to come up quite a lot. <laughs> right. On the one hand, we're arguing that the the picture that we've been giving is way too oversimplified, and we need to wade into the complexities. But once you wade into the complexities, you realize that there's a like even simpler thing buried underneath all that. Right. <laughs> you know, that was yeah, more like, more true and rich than the thing you had started with, but it's also different. But you got to go through the complexities in order to get there. So. Yeah, it's so insane. Like, seriously, like going through all this, like I feel like we've been on a great journey this year um, with, with the sermons and stuff. Like, And so like the more that we dig into complexities, the more I kind of zoom back out and I'm like, oh, 
oh, this is, this is way more simpler. This is way more true. This is way easier. The burden is way lighter than, you know, it ever was for me. And like, how could I have missed this before? You know, but it's only through that process of, you know, kind of digging in and going deep and being able to kind of go back and forth on things. The other thing that I would throw out there for people kind of coming out of James, which I, th- I, f- I feel is a little bit of a tangent given where we've been talking, but I can't not say it, is be open and honest with yourself on which side of this justice equation you're, you are. A lot of us want to think that we're on the side of being persecuted, that we're the ones that are the recipients of injustice. We're the ones being oppressed. And most of us aren't. We sit in America in most of us pretty wealthy positions when we relate ourselves and put ourselves in, in context of the rest of the world. For the most part, we're the oppressors and we need to realize that. That's a hard pill to swallow. For a lot of us, I think we need to take James's message to heart as those who sit in positions of power and influence and benefit from and on the backs of others. And we need to be willing to ask tough questions about ourselves and the systems that we benefit from and realize that when he says God's judgment is at the door, in lots of ways, that's directed at us. And so to the extent that we are part of the church and are God's people, we need to be ready to give up a lot of that. And that's, that's another uncomfortable reality that we need to face. Yeah, one of the things that you said uh, when the Capitol riot happened, um, you kind of talked about like, we're not in the business of protecting our way of life. That's not what we're here to do. And this just kind of in another way, you know, restates that like, we have to be able to say, hey, you know, in this, in, in a lot of situations, we are the oppressors and we have to give up some of those things to do justice and to do rightly in the world. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It's almost easier to say, oh, I need to, you know, like, it's almost easier to accept the message to, to just be joyful in your suffering than it is to realize that you're the one that's causing the suffering. Yo, it is like, <laughs> it's way easier to say, yeah, like, so to some extent, like, you know, suffering, like, it's way easier to say, enjoy that. Yeah, way easier than to be like, oh, I am causing people pain and I got to figure out how to stop it. And again, that goes back to this whole wisdom idea. You know, James encourages us and, and compels us to, to pray for God's wisdom. It's going to be God's help and the help of the church that's going to open our eyes to the ways in which we're part of the problem. And again, and, and back to the whole idea of listening to those in the margin, like you have to listen to these people. Like some of them are the ones that are oppressed. Some of them are just out from a completely different perspective, looking back on us and saying, hey, y'all are screwing up here, here, here. And rather than being defensive and casting them out as heretics, we need to say, okay, are they right? How are they right? Yeah. And that's uncomfortable. That's what we're here to do, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just... What's the alternative? Go forward, you know, be blinded, missing the point. I mean, <laughs> right? you can. Yeah. Plenty of people are happy to do that, and they would rather do that. They don't want to take yeah. a critical look at themselves and, and the ways in which they're causing the problems and part of the problem and supporting the structures that are hurting and holding other people down. The funny thing about seeking the truth is like every now and then it's, it's, it's against you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not partisan in any way. You know, the, yeah. the truth is the truth. And when you find it, you're like, oh, crud. Like, yeah, I've missed it here. And we, we've got to rectify the situation. All right. Well, on that note, we will call this one to a close. Thanks for hanging out, talking about James. And we just hope that God helps us all find a path forward 
we can find his justice in the midst of all of the chaos that's going on. And I think one of the things we learned, hopefully from this week and a discussion of James, is that uh, these issues are real. They, they have not left the church, that we are still in the midst of a lot of these same discussions and problems and need to find our way through it with God's help. So may God help us all do exactly that. See you next week.